I could not help noticing it. The above, signed Alan Quatermain, is an extract from my diary written two years and more ago. I copy it down here because it seems to me that it is the fittest beginning to the history that I am about to write, if it please God to spare me to finish it. If not, well, it does not matter. That extract was penned seven thousand miles or so from the spot where I now lie painfully and slowly writing this, with a pretty girl standing by my side, fanning the flies from my august countenance. Harry is there, and I am here, and yet, somehow, I cannot help feeling that I am not far off, Harry. When I was in England, I used to live in a very fine house. At least, I call it a fine house, speaking comparatively, and judging from the standard of the houses I have been accustomed to all my life in Africa. Not five hundred yards from the old church where Harry is asleep— and thither I went after the funeral and ate some food, for it is no good starving even if one has just buried all one's earthly hopes. But I could not eat much, and soon I took to walking, or rather limping, being permanently lame from the bite of a lion, up and down, up and down the oak-panelled vestibule, for there is a vestibule in my house in England. On all the four walls of this vestibule were placed pairs of horns, about a hundred pairs altogether, all of which I had shot myself. They are beautiful specimens, as I never keep any horns which are not in every way perfect, unless it may be now and again on account of the associations connected with them. In the centre of the room, however, over the wide fireplace, there was a clear space left on which I had fixed up all my rifles. Some of them I have had for forty years, old muzzle-loaders that nobody would look at nowadays. One was an elephant gun with strips of rimpy or green hide lashed round the stock and locks, such as used to be owned by the Dutchman, a roer, they call it. That gun, the Boer I bought it from many years ago, told me, had been used by his father at the Battle of the Blood River, just after Dingaan swept into Natal and slaughtered six hundred men, women, and children, so that the Boers named the place where they died Weenan, or the Place of Weeping, and so it is called to this day, and always will be called. And many an elephant have I shot with that old gun." She always took a handful of black powder and a three-ounce ball, and kicked like the very juice. Well, up and down I walked, staring at the guns and the horns which the guns had brought low, and as I did so there rose up in me a great craving. I would go away from this place where I lived idly and at ease, back again to the wild land where I had spent my life, where I met my dear wife and poor Harry was born, and so many things, good, bad, and indifferent, had happened to me. The thirst for the wilderness was on me. I could tolerate this place no more. I would go and die as I had lived, among the wild game and the savages. Yes, as I walked, I began to long to see the moonlight gleaming silvery white over the wide veldt, a mysterious sea of bush, and watch the lines of game travelling down the ridges to the water. The ruling passion is strong in death, they say, and my heart was dead that night. 
but independently of my trouble, no man who has for forty years lived the life I have can with impunity go coop himself in this prim English country with its trim hedgerows and cultivated fields, its stiff formal manners and its well-dressed crowds. He begins to long, ah, how he longs, for the keen breath of the desert air. He dreams of the sight of Zulu impies breaking on their foes like surf upon the rocks, and his heart rises up in rebellion against the strict limits of the civilized life. Ah, this civilization, what does it all come to? For forty years and more I lived among savages and studied them and their ways, and now for several years I have lived here in England and have in my own stupid manner done my best to learn the ways of the children of light. And what have I found? A great gulf fixed? No, only a very little one that a plain man's thought may spring across. I say that as the savage is, so is the white man, only the latter is more inventive and possesses the faculty of combination, save and except also that the savage, as I have known him, is to a large extent free from the greed of money, which eats like a cancer into the heart of the white man. It is a depressing conclusion, but in all essentials the savage and the child of civilization are identical. I dare say that the highly civilized lady reading this will smile at an old fool of a hunter's simplicity when she thinks of her black bead-bedecked sister, and so will the superfine cultured idler scientifically eating a dinner at his club, the cost of which would keep a starving family for a week. And yet, my dear young lady, what are those pretty things round your own neck? They have a strong family resemblance, especially when you wear that very low dress to the savage woman's beads. Your habit of turning round and round to the sound of horns and tom-toms, your fondness for pigments and powders, the way in which you love to subjugate yourself to the rich warrior who has captured you in marriage, and the quickness with which your taste in feathered headdresses varies. All these things suggest touches of kinship. And remember that in the fundamental principles of your nature, you are quite identical. As for you, sir, who also laugh, let some man come and strike you in the face whilst you are enjoying that marvellous-looking dish, and we shall soon see how much of the savage there is in you. There, I might go on for ever, but what is the good? Civilization is only savagery, silver gilt. A vain glory is it, and, like a northern light, comes but to fade and leave the sky more dark. Out of the soil of barbarism it has grown like a tree, and, as I believe, into the soil like a tree it will once more, sooner or later, fall again. As the Egyptian civilization fell, as the Hellenic civilization fell, and as the Roman civilization and many others, of which the world has now lost count, fell also. Do not let me, however, be understood as decrying our modern institutions, representing as they do the gathered experience of humanity applied for the good of all. Of course, they have great advantages, hospitals, for instance. But then remember, 
We breed the sickly people who fill them. In a savage land, they do not exist. Besides, the question will arise, how many of these blessings are due to Christianity as distinct from civilization? And so the balance sways and the story runs. Here again, there a loss, and nature's great average struck across the two, whereof the sum total forms one of the factors in that mighty equation in which the result will equal the unknown quantity of her purpose. I make no apology for this digression, especially as this is an introduction which all young people and those who never like to think and it is a bad habit, will naturally skip. It seems to me very desirable that we should sometimes try to understand the limitations of our nature so that we may not be carried away by the pride of knowledge. Man's cleverness is almost infinite and stretches like an elastic band, but human nature is like an iron ring. You can go round and round it, you can polish it highly, you can even flatten it a little on one side, whereby you will make it bulge out on the other. But you will never, while the world endures and man is man, increase its total circumference. It is the one fixed, unchangeable thing, fixed as the stars, more enduring than the mountains, as unalterable as the way of the eternal. Human nature is God's kaleidoscope, and the little bits of coloured glass which represent our passions, hopes, fears, joys, aspirations towards good and evil and what not, are turned in his mighty hand as surely and as certainly as it turns the stars, and continually fall into new patterns and combinations.